Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. Second Kings six. It's our uh, custom on Sundays to read and preach through usually entire books of the Bible uh, straight through in order. Uh, sometimes we deviate from that a little bit, uh, but usually if we've we've started something, we continue through it to the end. That is a custom called consecutive expository preaching. And we do that for a few reasons, one of those being that we get to hear everything that God tells us in his word. Preachers don't get to stand up here and and sit on a hobby horse and preach one thing over and over again. Preachers also don't get to simply skip difficult passages in this uh, method of preaching. 2 Kings chapter 6 is, is actually something of a difficult passage at least verses 1 through 7 here, not in the sense that it uh, discusses hell, not in the sense that it confronts us on our, our deepest pet sins that we just don't want to be told no to, not in the sense that it's, it's anything graphic or embarrassing or difficult to read, but in the sense that we're not entirely sure what to do with this passage, <laughs> It looks very simple. It looks very small. It looks a little bit insignificant. We'll get through reading these, these seven verses, and you almost want to say, is that it? <laughs> Isn't there anything else? Uh, and so I'm going to tell you that, in one sense, yes, this passage is just as simple as it looks. But in another sense, when we take into account some of the the larger context, it is much, much deeper than it looks. So these seven verses will be our text for this morning. Before we read it, uh, let's pray one more time. Our Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for this morning. We thank you for, uh, especially this day, January 1st, as we look back on 2022 and Remember many, many days and uh, millions of times that you have been faithful to us and blessed us. We look forward to this year, 2023, that uh, you will again prove yourself to be faithful many, many times. And we've gathered together this morning again to, to come to your word. We've come to hear, we've come to listen. Uh, We, your servants, are ready, and so we pray, God, that you would speak to us now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan And each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. 
Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Amen. So we, we pick up here in the, the story of Elisha with this sort of seminary school of prophets coming together to build a, a new building. Uh, now some translations, uh, like the ESV, say we, we want to dwell there. The building that we're dwelling in is, is too small. Some translations may have live, some may say meet. Uh, probably it's best to think of this building as some sort of, of meeting place, maybe like a, like a school, uh, rather than something like a large house, not, not dwelling there permanently, but coming together to dwell, to meet. And simply put, Elisha gives his approval. They begin, an accident happens, and Elisha solves it. Uh, this is what, what some commentators have called an utterly insignificant miracle. <laughs> and because of that, uh, a lot of, I'll say scholars and some non-scholars have tried to find some sort of deep meaning. They look at this and they say, is that really it? One person, one axe head, just bringing it up out of the water. Uh, so some people will try to take this text and they say something like, well, you clearly, you shouldn't cut wood near a river careful chopping down trees. Uh, maybe don't borrow tools, because who knows what could happen to them. Um, I've borrowed a lot of tools, and thank you, and I promise I won't lose any of them in a river. Uh, some may look at this and say, this is clearly a case against uh, a building program, right? You might lose an axe head. Things will go wrong. Of course, you could also turn it around and say, Elisha made the axe head float. Maybe it is a case for building programs after all. I don't know. The problem is that 2 Kings is not the book of Proverbs, where we can take away those little bits of, of very hyper-practical wisdom like that. You can't read it like Proverbs. Uh, now, if you were to, if probably, if you were to Google 2 Kings 6, like I did, you might see a majority of people say something like this. The iron, the axe head, represents man's soul. Uh, buried under the waters of judgment. The stick, the wood, you could also translate it as tree, represents the cross. And the cross causes the man's soul to float and come up out of the waters of judgment and be saved. Of course, it's not just good enough to come up like that, you have to reach out and take it. And so the hand that this prophet uses to grab the accent is the hand of faith. That's called allegory or spiritualizing. And the problem is you can kind of run amok with that sort of interpretation if you want. You, can, you could really kind of make any Bible passage say just about anything you want because all of these different little pieces have some sort of hidden meaning. It's also difficult to say that because it's really hard to believe that that's what Elisha meant when he performed this miracle for maybe 2,000 years. Uh, and if you were to look at even farther back in the Bible, 
that meaning would be totally obscure to anybody who lived in the Old Testament time because they didn't have the cross. So it's hard to believe that that's what it means. And so again, I'm going to tell you, it is both as simple as it seems, but also a little bit deeper than it first appears. The Lord is a helper in the small things. And in this text, I see one very obvious way that the Lord helps and one not so obvious way that the Lord helps. And so we'll look at those two things. The first being that the very obvious help, which is in verses 5 through 7, of course, as, as one of the prophets is cutting down a tree, he takes maybe a big, a big swing back and the axe head slips off his handle and flies off into the Jordan River. Uh, and that's not a completely unknown kind of phenomenon. Actually, even in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 19, it it makes a provision for when this exact situation happens, but it flies off and and hits somebody, maybe even kills somebody. This kind of thing was known to happen. Of course, this axe head doesn't hit a person. It lands in a river, and he seems to react pretty strongly when he says, alas, my master, Alas is a, uh, a very, very small word. You could probably make an entire sermon on it. This one little Hebrew word for alas occurs 15 times in the Old Testament, once here, and in 13 other times, you could say it's used in a situation where someone is about to die. Or it's used in a situation where God's wrath is about to be poured out on someone. So you actually see it back in chapter 3 when we talked about Elisha helping the three kings as they go to war against Moab as, as the armies are marching around in the desert circuitously for, uh, for days on end and can't find any water. They cry out, alas, the Lord has brought us into the wilderness to die. Uh, or actually later on in chapter 6 even, when, when um, Elisha's servant wakes up one morning, he looks out past the city walls and he sees an entire army surrounding the city there to come get one man, Elisha. He says, alas, what are we going to do? Uh, alas is not something people go around saying, alas, I can't find my keys. <laughs> Where did my phone go? So it's a strong reaction, but surely other prophets had axes. I can't imagine this was the only one they were using for this entire project. Uh, But this tool was borrowed, or maybe a little bit more literally translated, it was asked for, it was begged for, it was prayed for. Also, iron was very expensive and rare. You can just hop over to Home Depot or Walmart to buy a new one and give back to the original owner in this day and age. And moreover, this was an impoverished group of prophets who at times, as we saw in chapter 4, they would literally have to go into the wilderness to find plants and vegetables to put in a big pot of soup. And it would be very difficult to find in the bottom of a river. It was gone for good. Um, now, one of, my, one of my hobbies in life and I say, that, I say this a lot, before I had kids, I had hobbies. So before I had kids, this was my hobby, to go disc golfing, which is where you take a Frisbee and you throw it at a basket 
300, 500 feet away, and you just try to get it in there in as few throws as possible. Um, the problem with disc golf is that people who build those courses love to put lakes and ponds in them. And so I'll never forget the one instance where I was, I was out, I think it was in high school or college or something like that, and I was lining up for a throw to the hole a couple hundred feet away or whatever. There's a big lake off to my right, and the one thing in my head was, don't throw it to the right. Just don't throw it there. And so I wound up and I threw it and threw it at just the right angle where I saw it go straight into the middle of the lake. And it was gone for good. <laughs> if you've ever dropped anything in a river, anything in a lake, uh, you know you can't find it if it's more than like two feet down. It's gone for good. And especially, funnily enough, Naaman, in just the previous chapter, said the Jordan River was particularly dirty and muddy. You can't see anything at the bottom of that river. And so I say all this to say, this is not a life and death situation. But it matters very, very much to this prophet. It is still a big deal for him. And so Elisha hears this man cry and he saves him from, from what would be an almost certain debt. He is providing for this single man in his single small crisis. Uh, Ralph Davis, uh, a pastor and a writer, makes a very poignant remark in his commentary on this book for Christians, not to confuse God's greatness with his bigness. God is great, but that doesn't just mean he's big. He is not merely great like a CEO who's running from meeting to meeting, too busy for the little people, too preoccupied to listen to your prayer. God is great in part because he cares about all of your tiny little crises. He cares about every single one of them. All of those times where you say, yeah, I, I know it's not all that important, but it matters to me. I need this. I don't want to be late to work again. I, I can't deal with my kids fighting for just one more second. <laughs> it's not life and death, but I need it. I know an axe head isn't the end of the world, but it's important to me. God cares about every single one of those trivial needs in your day-to-day -day life. He's there with you, not just when the house burns down, but he's there when dinner is burning on the stove. He's there for his children. And if you think about it, how many life-changing events do you go through? Actually, not that many. You don't go through that many life-changing events in your life. And so if you only ever think God is there with you during the big moments, you're missing out on so much of his promise. You're missing out on him being with you for 95% of your life. He's there with you for all of your trivial needs. That's, that's the obvious help. Uh, here's the not so obvious one. It comes in verse 1. The place at which the school of prophets met was getting too small for them. 
Now this, I think, takes us actually all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 18. Before Elisha was ever on the scene, before Elisha was a prophet and called by God, back when Elijah was doing battle with the wicked king Ahab. Now back then there were, we're specifically told, 100 prophets of the Lord. But they were hiding in caves because they were afraid of being killed. And when Elijah hears about it, he sends word to King Ahab and he says, Enough is enough. Go get your 850 prophets and meet me at Mount Carmel and we'll settle this once and for all. And so in a, in a matchup of one versus 850, they, they test each of their gods to see whose god will miraculously light a sacrifice on fire. And the 850 cry and they yell and they cut themselves and they dance all day long to no avail. And Elijah merely prays to his god and God rains the fire down from heaven. Elijah orders those 850 prophets killed. And, and as you're reading, and as Elijah thought, a, a massive revival is about to take place, right? Wrong. Queen Jezebel bounces right back. She threatens Elijah's life. He goes on the run. He goes to hide out at a mountain. And he wonders what in the world God is doing. God's response is to tell him, it's not all going to happen yet. Now, this is actually how we got to Elisha. Now, the revival is not going to happen yet, but you're going to anoint Hazael, king of Syria, Jehu, king of Israel, and Elisha to be the prophet after you. That's your job right now. In 1 Kings chapter 18, there were 100 prophets. Coincidentally, in 2 Kings chapter 4, where we left off the seminary, there were 100 prophets. And now in 2 Kings chapter 6, their building is too small for them. And we don't know exactly how many there are, but the point is that the number of the faithful remnants is growing in Israel at this time. It doesn't matter how many evil kings sit on the throne of Israel. It doesn't matter how many prophets of Baal are surviving and thriving and preaching. God was growing and sustaining his followers in an environment of persecution. They've come such a long way from hiding in caves to the point of a a public building project. That is awesome. But it's all gone on in the background unnoticed. You haven't read a single word of it in the book of Kings. It's gone on unexplained. God is continually building his church, sustaining his people, spreading his message, even when the church isn't getting the headlines. And even when it looks like nothing's going on in the day-to-day. He's growing his church. We could, uh, we could leave it right there, but I think there's another angle from which we need to view this text. And that is, who was this story originally intended for? Or for whom was it written down? Who would have been the first readers of this text and what message were they supposed to get out of it? 
Well, it's, it's pretty widely understood that the, that the very first readers of this text who would have read the Hebrew scrolls were exiled Israel. God's people who, who had been decimated, who'd been humiliated by a foreign nation, they were now living in a foreign country with kings and, and governors and neighbors who hated the Lord. They had no temple, they had no sacrifices, they had no word of God. And as they read through First and Second Kings and they read through all the miracles of Elisha, they would have, should have, come to the realization Elisha represents hope. He represents hope as we're sitting in exile. There are so many different stories of God dealing with his, his faithful remnant. He, he's raising dead people to life. He, he's been preventing some sort of lifelong slavery for innocent people. There have been stories with with other evil kings and and foreign countries and and their armies uh, uh, get blinded. They get the wool pulled over their eyes by Elisha. There's one story of of, of the outsider Naaman and he gets converted by God. But tucked away in the middle of all those big things is this very unimpressive, random story of an axe head. And so it's almost as if God is telling those Israelites in exile, have hope, but remember it's not going to all happen at once. It's not always going to be the giant miracles. It's not always going to be all that impressive. There will be many, many small days of waiting and serving, waiting before you go, get to go back to your home country, waiting for the Messiah, your Savior, to come for hundreds of years. There are going to be many, many, many small, menial moments in your life where you are going to need God and God is going to be faithful to you. So I think that the deeper lesson here is this. Do not despise the days of small things. Um, and that's, that's not my wording exactly. It comes from the, the prophecy of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, actually closely related to the, the people who would have first read this text, Zechariah chapter 4 uh, tells about after the exile, when the people have returned to their country finally, and they're rebuilding the temple, they're they're rebuilding Jerusalem. The the Jews have all come back, but there were some who got frustrated. It was going to be a slow and painful rebuilding. Um, there There were many, many different obstacles to this project. They wondered if the whole thing was going anywhere. They wondered if this whole thing was worth it. Why are we even here? Why are we even doing this when nothing's happening? But God says to Zechariah, the day of small things won't always be small things. It looks like it now. They might despise the day of small things, but they will rejoice when they finally see the day of big things. 
And so you swing a hammer, you cut a piece of wood. That's all it looks like now for them. But the Lord remained faithful to Israel and all of those small things, even as he called them to keep laboring in those very small things. <clears throat> two, of the, two of the biggest lies that you can believe about God's work is that it must happen now and it must be big. Now, to be sure, we do need to have a sense of urgency when we're ministering and we're preaching the gospel and we're sharing and evangelizing and things like that. And yes, it is true that anything can happen at any moment, but it is too easy to think the thought, if God was in this, something would have happened by now. If God was in this, it should be so much bigger. Is God really in this? But God usually takes his time. You see that with with Elijah and Elisha. You see that with, with Zechariah's day waiting for Jesus to come 400, 500 years later. You see that even all the way with Adam and Eve when they sinned and God promised a savior and a son who would come, how long they had to wait for that savior. And God often, I would say, usually works in very small increments. Elijah himself was very disappointed by the progress he'd seen in his lifetime. Even you look at Jesus' own ministry, right? It was not what all of the religious people thought it was going to be. It was not overthrowing the Roman Empire. It was a healing here. It was a healing there. It was bread here. It was bread there. Until the work of the cross. And so if you only ever expect now and big, you will become disillusioned very quickly. You will grow bitter, you will lose faith, and you'll start to think this whole thing might be a lie. Now to, to put this lesson uh, another way, and I'm, I'm stealing this from elsewhere as well, you may have heard it before, we often overestimate what God will do in a year but we underestimate what God can do in 10. And so we can dream of the Naamans, we can dream of the the Shunammite sons, we can dream of the, the feasts that get miraculously prepared for hundreds of people. We dream big, but we start small, and we be faithful where we're at. Do not despise the day of, of small things. Stay faithful in the small things as God stays faithful to you. Now, you might, you might have, uh, well, what does this look like in the day-to-day, right? You may have seen that um, the earth just uh, recently, we crossed the 8 billion mark for number of people alive on the planet. A lot of people. Uh, I went on last night to check. 3.3 billion of those people have never heard of Jesus Christ. Never heard the gospel. Now, to me, if I'm being honest, that's a little depressing, and that takes some of the wind out of my sails, because that is a big job. That is a lot of people. That is a lot of missionaries we need to send out. We can spend 
our time praying for those nations to come in, for God to raise up laborers for the harvest to go out. But then, the small thing, invite your neighbor over to your house for dinner. Tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dream for the big, but start small and be faithful where you are. Uh, here's a, here's a, uh, a, a fun fact you may or may not know. This is according to Wikipedia. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. And we all want to be better Bible scholars, right? I don't think there's anybody in this room that would say, I don't need to know my Bible any better. I don't need to read it anymore. I think I've got it. The temptation, it's, it's January 1st, right? Probably a lot of you are going to start brand new Bible reading plans. Uh, maybe you didn't get through Genesis, but you think last year. But this year, this is the year. I'm going to get through the whole thing. So you're going to be tempted to go home today or tomorrow morning, wake up and read all 31,000 verses in one sitting. Um, you could read 30 verses a day for three years and get through the entire Bible. That's five minutes a day. That is not a lot. Uh, and if you did that for 30 years, you'd have read through the Bible 10 times. And I'm sure that is more than 99.9% of Christians in this country have ever read the Bible. You can dream big. You can be a Bible scholar, but it takes starting small. You might think, well, I'm not, I'm not smart enough. I, I can't speak well enough. I don't have the right skills. And I've been, I've been listening to a sermon series through the book of Exodus and, and was reminded, Moses said to God, I, I can't go speak to Pharaoh. My, my, my tongue is too heavy. My mouth is too slow. I, I cannot speak. And God says to Moses, I made those lips. I made that tongue. I made those vocal cords. If you're going to speak, I can get you to speak. It doesn't matter if you're not eloquent enough. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're not a scholar. It doesn't matter if you don't have the right skills. Be faithful in the small things. Do what you can. Um, you might say, I, I want to do great things for God. But hypothetically, I'm stuck at home with my two toddlers all day long. What can I do? Uh, so someone in the church showed me, I'm going to use a prop. Uh, somebody in the church showed me this book, Every Moment Holy. Uh, I've not read through the entire thing. I'm sure some of you uh, have it. I've never heard of the author before, uh, so I don't know about him. But it's a fascinating book because it's got a prayer for some of the most random things in life that you could ever imagine. A prayer for while you're changing diapers. And then a second prayer for changing diapers because there are a lot of diapers to be changed, is what he says. You say, I want to do great things for God, but I'm stuck at home. There's a prayer for that. Many are the things that must be done daily. Meet me, therefore, O Lord, in doing of the small repetitive tasks, in the cleaning and ordering and maintenance and stewardship of things of dishes, of floors, of carpets, and toilets, and tubs, of scrubbing, and sweeping, and dusting, and laundering, that by such stewardship I might bring a greater order to my own life and to the lives of any I am given to serve, so that in those ordered spaces bright things might flourish, fellowship and companionship, creativity and conversation, 
learning and laughter and enjoyment and health. As I steward the small daily tasks, may I remember these good ends and so discover in my labors the promise of the central hopes that underlie them. High King of Heaven, you've showed yourself among us as the servant of all. Speaking stories of a kingdom to come, a kingdom in which those who spend themselves for love, even in the humblest of services, will not be forgotten. Every, every moment mimicking Christ's own self-sacrificial love and service, waiting for maybe a slightly bigger time to come. Uh, and some of you say, I wish I had my kids at home. <laughs> I wish I could see them more often and tell them about the things of God. They're, they're all over the place. I don't know where they are half the time. So prayer for that. If you'll indulge me again. Uh, a, a, a prayer for the hurried preparation of a meal. Lord, I have little time to build this meal, but I would still make of it a holy offering. Let me work into these rapid preparations a care and a kindness for those who will partake. Even in our common haste, may this meal serve as a catalyst for a deeper grace, reminding us to be ever thankful. Let those who share this food embrace the fellowship of the moment, however fleeting, and let them rise from the table, that even in their comings and their goings, they are nurtured and loved. Even in those, those very, very brief moments, a care and a kindness, as much as you can, make them nurtured and loved. Use it as a catalyst for something deeper. Uh, I must say, I, I, I want to do great things for God. I'm stuck at my dead-end job. My coworkers hate me. My boss hates me. I don't know what to do. A prayer for someone who is employed. O oh Christ, who supplies my every need, I praise you for all provisions and for the means by which they are provided. For my current employment in this season of life, I give you thanks. By it, may I meet my own needs and contribute to the needs of others. Let me work and serve in this position with mindfulness, creativity, and kindness, loving you well by loving all whom I encounter here. Grant me, therefore, the patience to listen to others, the humility to learn from them, the compassion to consider their needs as my own, and the grace to wear well in this place the name of the Lord, remembering that I arrive here each day as an emissary of your kingdom. Even in the dead-end job, God is meeting all of your needs. He's being faithful to you. And you're wearing that name badge of Jesus Christ when you walk into that workplace and everything that you do. You might say, I want to do great things for God. I can't get out of bed in the morning. My back is messed up. My legs hurt. I can't see. I can't even move. What am I going to do for God? A prayer for the sick for this brief pause, for this reminder of my own weakness and of my dependence upon you, I thank you, O Lord. A day such as this in which I endure a measure of sickness or unease is a reminder that the redemption of all things is not yet complete. It is a reminder that this body will decline and one day fail, and so it is also a reminder that the ways I spend my days matter. 
For my hours revealed like veins of gold beneath a rushing stream are a limited resource to be purposefully mined or forever lost. A day such as this is a reminder that good health and vigor are gifts to be consciously and gratefully enjoyed and to be invested while they might in eternal things. So let me finish this day, O Lord, wiser than I began it. So let even the unease I feel today work as your servant, accomplishing your better purposes in me. Maybe you're not going to be a Billy Graham and go out and preach to a thousand people today. Maybe God is just working in you a little bit to be more dependent on him, to love him more than anything else. Maybe he's simply working in you in a very small way to help you worship in the midst of that pain. Now, I say, I say all these things not to tell you to buy that book, but to show you that there's a way that you can go about all of the menial things of life, glorifying God. It's, it's a call to very faithful plodding in the small things. P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G, plodding. Because he is a God that starts small and works through small things. That's why we read Luke chapter 13, the two parables at the end, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven in the bread. The kingdom of God does not come and proclaim itself all right away. It starts as a mustard seed, tiny, imperceptible, growing very, very diligently, but you don't see it every day. It's the leaven, it's the, it's the yeast, that, that little tiny teaspoon of yeast that you put into a, a big hunk of dough and watch the entire loaf rise. It's not a revolution. It's, it's reading your Bible, praying, giving to the church, coming to church, going to small group, getting married, raising kids, talking to your coworkers, talking to your neighbors, that's how you make a difference in the kingdom. It's unimpressive, it's modest, almost imperceptible until it blooms one day in full in the, the new heavens and the new earth where every knee will bow and every eye will finally see our King and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But for now, it's just a mustard seed. We're, we're, we're coming out of the Christmas season where we celebrate Jesus, come to the earth, Emmanuel, God with us. And we cannot forget that principle of God with us. Because God is not just with us at Christmas. He is not just with you when somebody dies. He's not just with you when you come to church. He is with you at every single moment. And it infuses every moment of your small, menial day with, with hope. And it infuses it with importance and meaning and significance. All of that faithful plotting is moving you, your family, your church, and your neighbors to a great, glorious end. So do not despise these days of small things. Remember that he is faithful in them and he is using them. Amen. Let's pray together.
our great God and our glorious Savior, we do give you all of the praise for every moment of our lives. We thank you that you are the God who speaks to us, who, who is there for a, a, a single man who loses an axe head. We thank you that you are there with us in every menial moment as we change diapers, as we experience pain, as we go to our jobs uh, tomorrow morning, as we go away from here and take, take care of our kids. Lord, we thank you that you are always with us. We pray that you would give us a, a, a great sense of your presence every second, and we pray that we would use each one of those seconds for your glory and for the greater good of your kingdom. And we ask all these things in Jesus.